Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome, fellow time travellers. Good to have you back for episode 90. Goodness me, imagine that, when Paul and I started this oh, two years ago now. Never thought we'd get here, but here we are, episode 90, and we've come all this way together. Some of you listening will have listened to every one of these, and it's been lovely to have you along. And you'll just have to excuse me as I have a little moment there. Before today's episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about my Patreon site, which helps to support the making of this series. It's full of more history and comment. Every week I add a new vodcast, which is exclusive to the Patreon site. It's filmed here at my home in Stirling. For folks who are new to the site, there's a whole archive of videos to catch up on, and uh, not to mention the occasional competition. To join me, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver. It'd be great to have your support, and I would definitely love to have you along for the ride. Okay, now it's time to head to the south coast of England to start the essential training for this week's Love Letter to the British Isles. generations that are alive now we owe what we have to men like them in this episode preparations for Operation Overlord are go plans to invade and liberate Europe are drawn up amphibious landings on five beaches in Normandy Utah, Omaha, Gold Juno and Sword Hitler was well prepared, ready and determined. Allied preparation and rehearsals were vital. Training simulations had to be as realistic as possible. A heady mix of thousands of men, live ammunition and miscommunication. German e-boats, secret documents and disaster. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode we walked in the shadow of a complex genius of a man, Winston Churchill, the leader who inspired Britain in its time of need. Where are we this week? Well, we're staying with World War II, and in this episode, we're at a crucial juncture in the conflict. Perhaps the most crucial. In the early years, when Britain was at its most vulnerable, Churchill made it plain that he and his fellow Britons would never surrender. But now Russia and the US have entered the war, and the tide has begun to turn. Today, we're heading to the south coast of England as Allied troops begin practicing for D-Day. 
were in Devon at Slapton Sands, witnessing Exercise Tiger. Paul, we're on Slapton Sands, which is a beach, a lovely beach in Devon. It's quintessential south-west England terrain. It's the sort of beach that you would think about if you think about a traditional southern English beach holiday. It's a lovely spot. And if you were to turn up there on a sunshiny day and park your car and mosey on over and start walking along the sand, it would probably never occur to you that anything much had ever happened there, apart from waves coming and going. It's just a peaceful and attractive location. However, like so many places, it was touched by the Second World War. War broke out in 1939, of course. We've talked previously about Royal Oak, the battleship that was sunk in Scapa Flow, right at the beginning of the war, 1939. And then we have the Battle of Britain in 1940. And as early as then, Winston Churchill, Prime Minister, was speaking about his determination that Britain would never surrender that the fight could be anywhere. And in his famous speeches, of course, he talked about were it necessary so to do, there would be fighting in the fields and in the streets, on the landing grounds and on the beaches. And it was literally true Britain was not invaded, but there was fighting. Britain was under constant attack from the air and there was an ever-present threat of invasion. The fact that it never came is another matter, but it was very much in people's minds and, and imaginations. And it's also true to say that for a while Britain stood alone. And Britain was imagined, or, or people imagined Britain, as a kind of a battleship, alone, cut off from Europe, floating, so to speak, out in the Atlantic, and without help to begin with. And it was during that period that Churchill was so important First of all, as a lone voice, he was able somehow to reassure the British that they had it in them to do what needed to be done. And it was a big ask. Britain's a small country. At the start of the war, Britain was in no way prepared for war, certainly not a prolonged war lasting for years. And it was very much on his shoulders to keep things going. But the fight back began... Britain eventually was supported by the United States of America, the Free French, the British Dominions, the countries of the Commonwealth. Britain was supported from many points, countries all over the world. And by the end of 1943, in fact, there were plans being cooked up by the British, by the Allies, by the Americans about how to begin the reconquest of Europe. Hitler had taken and fortified Europe, Fortress Europe. He had it pretty much surrounded by concrete and barbed wire. And everyone knew that it was going to be a massive undertaking to set foot back onto the European mainland. But long before it was able to be unleashed, that Allied offensive had a name. It was Operation Overlord. And the groundwork for making it even possible was a long time in the laying. And there was no alternative but that it begin with an amphibious landing. 
They were going to have to put men, thousands upon thousands of men, into boats and somehow get them onto the European mainland to begin the fight back. There would be men dropped from the air, of course, but the volume of soldiers that were required for the job, they would have to be moving over sea and landing. And so the preoccupation for the Allies was to identify where, where, probably in France, that that landing would be attempted. And by all sorts of covert action, aerial reconnaissance, even men in little submarines and boats, you know, moving about in the darkness, sneaking onto beaches, checking the geology, because a beach might look good from the air, but the sand or the silts might be too soft. Once you start talking about unloading tanks and other equipment, there were many things that had to be established. And so there was a, a long process whereby the Allies agonised over where the landing would be. But eventually a stretch of the Cotentin Peninsula in Normandy was identified. It was a stretch punctuated by beaches and by a process of elimination this was established as the location where the Allied forces would seek to gain a, a toehold, a bridgehead from which they could expand back into the European mainland. It was going to be a matter of five beaches in the Cotentin Peninsula. The most westerly was Utah Beach, codename Utah. It wasn't called Utah in, in the Cotentin Peninsula, but the Allied planning made it Utah, and that was going to be landed on and taken by American forces. Coming eastwards, there was Omaha, which probably everyone has heard of, Saving Private Ryan, Omaha, and the carnage that unfolded there. That would also be a target for the Americans. Then Gold, which would be taken by the British. Then Juno, which would be taken by the Canadians. And then Sword, last and most easterly in the line. And that would also be a British target. So these five locations would all be hit simultaneously on D-Day. People often say, what does the D stand for? It just stands for day. That was the day. D for day. By that point, the Allies, the British and the Americans, they knew the lie of the land. They had looked at it from the air, they had sniffed around it, they had been on it, they had checked the geology of it to see that it was suitable. First of all, the Americans in particular turned their attentions to Utah Beach, where their soldiers would come onto a long, easy curl of sand. And once they were, once they were on the dry land, they would have to push ahead and get through the sand dunes to the rear. And then behind the sand dunes, there was low-lying land that the Nazis had flooded. They had forced water into it to create a, an obstacle. So you'd have to come over the waves, get onto the beach, get up the beach, get through the sand dunes, and then you were going to be confronted by this watery morass, this shallow area of lakes and marsh. And so the Allies decided that what they would do was try and find somewhere in Britain where they could practice a stretch of British beach that mimicked and mirrored as far as possible the topography and the terrain of Utah so that they could have a large-scale practice run. You get thousands and thousands of men who are expected to risk everything landing on Utah Beach. So at the very least that could be done was, was to give them as realistic a rehearsal as possible. We 
Moving that many soldiers' personnel and equipment is a massive undertaking, isn't it? The logistics are breathtaking. Because essentially, the landing was one thing. You've got to get thousands upon thousands of men to land simultaneously in the first few minutes. But it doesn't stop at that point. Eventually, you're looking at millions of people that you've got to push onto the beach over the days and weeks to come. It has to be the sustained push. So all of it, the men, the equipment, everything had to be gathered up. A lot of it moved across the Atlantic, brought as far as the British Isles, the men especially. You know, so there was this massive build-up of logistics, of men, of ordnance, that all had to be coordinated. Then they had to go about the business of this rehearsal, and it was slapped in sands in Devon that was found to be almost heaven-sent. For a start, there was a two-mile stretch of beach, which was very similar to Utah. Behind it were sand dunes, again, just like Utah. And behind that, there was a freshwater lake, the largest in the southwest of England, Slapton Lake. It was as though it had been pre-prepared for them. By the autumn of 1943, whispers and rumours being what they are, the people in, in Slapton, the village, they knew something was up. <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of military vehicles had been seen prowling around. And so they knew something was coming. And the south coast of England was a different atmosphere from many other parts of the archipelago anyway, because they were the front line. If there had been an attempted invasion, it was going to come somewhere on the south coast or the east coast, so that the people living there had a mindset about being very wary, you know, very aware of what was going on around them. And so they knew something was up. And then sure enough, in November 1943, every house, every property in Slapton got a letter from the government giving them six weeks' notice to pack up and leave. Can you imagine? Farms, homes, businesses, everybody was told, six weeks' time, you're out. And furthermore, they weren't given any details about when or even if they would be allowed back. They were just told to go, no exceptions. The whole place was emptied of civilian life, which I find just extraordinary. It's 46 square miles in all, 180 farms, and then all the houses and properties within Slapton itself had to be cleared, and livestock. All the farm animals, gone, within a month and a half. And at that time, you know, 1943, many of the people living there in a rural location like Slapton, a lot of them had never been away from home. They didn't move around the way we do. You know, they didn't travel the length and breadth of the country and they didn't go overseas. So you're dealing with people, many of them, who'd only ever really moved around a, a small radius of Slapton and now they were just told to leave. And so it was and so they did without having any intimation about when they might get back home. And by Christmas 1943, Slapton was a ghost town. There was nobody there and in came the Allied military. Something like 23,000 Allied soldiers were going to be unloaded. And those same men had to practice. They would be the invasion force for Utah Beach. 23,000 of them. And so they moved in. By the April of 1944, that's April of the following year, they were practicing drills. They were learning how to form up, how to get aboard the landing craft. There were tank landing ships, specially designed and fitted out vessels. They would be taking them across. On the 27th of April, they had a drill with live ammunition because Eisenhower 
Dwight D. Eisenhower general at that time, subsequently to be President of the United States. But he was the supreme Allied commander and he had insisted, quite rightly I suppose, that the conditions for the rehearsal had to be as realistic as possible so that it was live, live ammunition that was unleashed. The whole operation was called Exercise Tiger. And tragically, not for the first time and not for the last time, it was botched in many ways. Communications were bad. You know, they were sending radio messages and signals all over the place trying to coordinate it. There were late changes of plan. And in any event, men in these vessels splashed ashore onto Slapton Sands at the wrong time and unknown numbers were killed by friendly fire because the bullets flying through the air were real and one way and another things went wrong and unknown numbers were killed. On Slapton Sands, long before they ever got into the line of fire of the enemy, they were cut down by accidents by their own side. But they had to keep going. The whole thing couldn't stop. I mean, by that point, you're, you're, you're dealing with a juggernaut. A, a great machine is already in action. And then the following day, 28th of April, thousands more got aboard these LSTs, the, the tank landing ships. And this was the full-scale landing. This was the big one. Each one of the vessels, each one of the LSTs had hundreds of men. The scale of it, it was pretty much on a scale of the real thing. And the channel, the English Channel, was known to be a kind of a happy hunting ground for German patrol boats. The Germans took any opportunity they could to nudge out into the channel and, and see what was going on and, and make trouble wherever they could. And the Germans were operating out of the French port of Cherbourg. So the Allies knew that the, there was a problem of maybe foxes in the hen coop. And so the Royal Navy were deployed to cover and protect the exercise. So battleships and warships were out in the channel, you know, lots of guys with binoculars scanning the horizon, trying to make sure that the Germans didn't make inroads. But as with the day before, it was all about mistakes and miscommunication. And a pod of German e-boats, which were fast-moving vessels, speedboats, with torpedoes aboard, got out and in amongst the exercise, realising without too much difficulty that there were a lot of Allied vessels. The e-boats were spotted and the vessel that saw them radioed a warning. But there were mix-ups and miscommunication all the way down the line. The tank landing ships were on the wrong frequency, so they didn't hear the warning. It all sounds unbelievable, but this is what happened. And the e-boats were able to let go with their torpedoes. Two tank landing ships with hundreds of men aboard each were sunk. At least one more was struck with a torpedo. And you've got hundreds of men aboard all of these vessels. In the aftermath, because it was so close to what would be D-Day, there was absolute silence on what had happened. There was no reporting. As far as was possible, any possibility of the general public getting to hear what had happened was shut down because of what it might have done to morale. Also, they didn't want Adolf Hitler and his cohort having the opportunity to celebrate the scale of what had happened. But it was undoubtedly a horror show that unfolded. The torpedoes set vessels on fire. 
men burned to death. Hundreds, unknown numbers, ended up in the water. In April, when the water's cold enough to kill, they were in full kit. Pounds and pounds of equipment on their backs. They couldn't stay afloat. Many of the regulation life vests were incorrectly fitted or incorrectly deployed. At least hundreds drowned. All the while this chaos was unfolding, further orders were issued on the correct frequency, finally. And the rest of the vessels, those vessels that had not been damaged by the e-boats so far, returned to shore. The skipper of one, rather than returning to shore, he decided to hunt for injured men in the water and was able to rescue something like 140 and pull them in to save them from hypothermia. As well as hundreds of soldiers going into the water, there were high-ranking officers. And because of the fact that the exercise, Exercise Tiger, was supposed to be as realistic as possible, was as realistic as possible, several of the high-ranking officers had the plans, the actual real plans for D-Day, on their persons when they went into the water. And so very quickly, Allied Command realised that if, dead or alive... If the Germans were to find any of these men, they would actually get their hands on all the plans for D-Day. So there was a major panic before, believe it or believe it not, every single one of the men who had been carrying the plans was accounted for, dead or alive. So the, the whole thing was almost leaked accidentally to the Germans. So Exercise Tiger, not to put too fine a point on it, it was ill-starred, it was a disaster from the outset. But D-Day was coming upon them, and so the decision was taken that what had happened on Slapton Sands could not be known. With the results, so not only was it not discussed at the time, it means that even now it's impossible to know how many men actually died. It was quashed. It was a tragedy that had happened. Everyone knew it had been a tragedy, but they couldn't properly deal with it at the time. They just had to sweep under the carpet almost and carry on because there was no stopping and so it was decided that there was nothing to be gained by having a kind of a post-mortem on Exercise Tiger. And it means that we have really no way of knowing how many people were actually lost. If you go looking for it now, on both sides of the Atlantic, there's agreement, official agreement, that 749 men died in Exercise Tiger on Slapton Sands. But there are many people who say that the reality was far, far higher, that it might have been in the thousands of people who were lost. So it was an astonishing tragedy, largely suppressed. Men who took part, men who survived, shaken, traumatised, who'd been in the water, who'd been lucky to survive Exercise Tiger, they still took part in D-Day. On the 6th of June, it was, it was the same men. They weren't replaced by anyone, it was them. And the irony is that the US losses on Utah Beach were fewer than 200. Which means that even if the figure of 749 is right, the US took a bigger hit on Slapton Sands than it took on Utah Beach, you know, which seems absolutely extraordinary. But the fact remains, Exercise Tiger had to happen. It was absolutely necessary. 
Hundreds, possibly thousands of men were lost, but tens of thousands of men had the opportunity to get a glimpse of what lay ahead of them. So even with hindsight, you would still say the exercise tiger had to go ahead, even though the tragedy unfolded. And it's probably legitimate to say that without exercise tiger, the men would not have been as prepared for the reality of D-Day and Utah Beach. Eventually, in the aftermath of the war, the people of Slapton were allowed back. Slapton was repopulated by the people who had lived there previously, but they hadn't witnessed Exercise Tiger. And the years passed, and what had happened on Slapton Sands was quietly and, well, deliberately forgotten, really. But during the 1970s, fishermen operating offshore in Slapton they were continually finding that their nets were getting snagged on some kind of underwater obstacle. And so local guys dived in the area and they found a US Sherman tank. Now there's probably more than one, but there was a, a Sherman tank that had come off of one of these tank landing vessels on the seabed and its superstructure was snagging fishing nets. And a local man, a Slapton man called Ken Small, once he learned about the tank, he began researching. And it was, in no small part, it was Ken Small who brought the tragedy of Slapton Sands back into the light. He began reading what was available and he found out the story and began piecing it all together. And then he put together a team and they recovered the tank. And if you go to the village of Tor Cross, which is at the south end of the beach, the tank is there as a memorial to the tragedy. They managed to get the tank out of the water and it's there as a memorial. But if you're to visit Slapton, knowing that, obviously it changes how you feel about that location to know that in amongst the beauty and the peace and the sound of the seabirds and the lapping of the waves, a few decades ago, it was a, a place of terrible tragedy and terrible loss. And it's, it's profoundly moving to know that the wounds of the Second World War aren't just, they aren't just on the European mainland. They're not just in France and Germany. They're here as well. That the scars of World War II and the bleeding and loss of World War II are right here and all around us. But without the sacrifice made by the men who were lost in Exercise Tiger on Slapton Sands, then D-Day might have unfolded differently. And the generations that are alive now, we owe what we have to men like them and many more besides. generation is very different from us today. I think it's just because when we hear about loss now, you know, when we have servicemen in the Middle East, in Iraq or, or in Afghanistan and, and reports come back of losses, sometimes singly, you know, people getting killed by roadside bombs. Other times we get reports of there being a firefight somewhere and, and a group are killed or injured and rightly people are, are upset and shocked. It's absolutely unimaginable for us to think about just an exercise just a training exercise like Exercise Tiger at least hundreds if not thousands of men dying practicing imagine that happening today how people would react to knowing that thousands of, of soldiers young men 
I mean, they're not dying needlessly, but to die before they even have the opportunity to take part in the battle for real is heartbreaking for what to go back to their families. It's one thing if you lose your son or your brother or your father or your husband fighting, but to lose them in a rehearsal is even more appalling, I would say. And people talk about that generation and how they were different from ours. Well, who can say? Who can say if they were different or not? But the reality is that the level of loss that that generation had to deal with is surely, it's inconceivable and unthinkable to us. Jealously guarded by kings, queens and the British government for centuries, only once in a thousand years were these islands wrestled away In the Second World War, they were Hitler's toehold on British territory, the start of his dreams of conquest. Alderney was a blank canvas upon which the Nazis drew something ugly, an army of slave labourers on a long, slow and torturous march to death, a chilling reminder of how close Hitler came. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please do write a review of this week's podcast to share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.